my there, soldiers. You are on In Your Face on 3CR on this election eve. Our guests today are Neil Farrow, Joe Ball and Anna Brown. And we do have political commentator and activist Neil Farrow on the line. Neil, welcome to the show. It's great to be back on the show, James. How are you? I'm good. A bit nervous, you know, a bit excited. Um, it's been a full-on six weeks. What's your analysis of the campaign? How would you sum it up? Oh, I'm not quite sure how you'd sum it up, the campaign. Look, I think we've seen uh, a few slips and slides from both sides of the campaign, um, and it started to tighten, obviously, in this final week. I think what's most exciting is how many people have voted already, um, but I'm quietly confident and quietly hopeful, probably, uh, touch wood, um, that we'll hopefully have a a more progressive, LGBTI-friendly, I think women-friendly government uh, come the end of Saturday. So it's showing my political colours, I must confess. Well, Neil, it's been a bit of an interesting campaign from an LGBTIQA plus perspective. I mean, we've had incredible transphobia during the campaign, but we've also been pretty light from the two major parties on LGBTIQA plus policy issues. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Look, I think um, to your first point there around the um, the sort of horrific, the horrific um, abuse that our our trans friends and colleagues have, have sort of copped again in this election campaign. I think that's extremely disappointing. I'd hoped that there'll be at least one election campaign where we can stop sort of um, just the the vitriol and the commentary and, and everything that that impacts our trans. Um, trans brothers and sisters and, and everyone else in between. Um, I think it's really disappointing that we're still having this discussion in 2022. I think other countries look at us and go, you know, what the hell is in the water in Australia? So, look, my big aspiration is I'm very hopeful that this will be our last campaign where um, these issues continue to crop up. I think it's really disappointing. And um, I wasn't quite sure whether Scott Morrison was doing it deliberately to try and create a wedge or, you know, with his captain's pick of obviously um, the candidate in Warringah, but sort of to your first point there, very disappointed and, and um, had hoped we'd be better than that. I think in relation to your second question around sort of the policies and announcements for the LGBTI community, um, in some ways that's a good thing. I think, you know, we've got a bit of unanimity across both the political parties around, you know, the needs to support things like, you know, the LGBTI Health Alliance and, and LGBTI Aged Care Services and and a lot of things seem to have settled down. So while I'm a little bit disappointed we haven't had a bit more ambition around LGBTI policy, I think there is a silver lining in all of that in that you know, things like the Health Alliance continue to be funded, national projects around HIV and AIDS, um, you know, sexual health. Um, yeah, mixed bag in that department, James. How culpable is the Prime Minister for Catherine Deves' campaign? Well, look, Catherine Deves was chosen by three people in New South Wales. Um, Scott Morrison... Dominic Perrottet and the former um, president of the Liberal Party in New South Wales. So, you know, assuming the former president, whatever um, their opinion might be, effectively Scott Morrison and Dominic Perrottet, you know, handpicked um, her for the seat. Um, I think it's really disappointing. I think, you know, the vitriol levels have been high and, and I do hope that it actually sends a message to a number of moderate Liberals who perhaps will lose their seat as a result of this kind of right-wing extremism that we seem to see consistently in a number of candidates. Yes, candidates like uh, Trevor Evans in Brisbane and even perhaps uh, Trent Zimmerman in uh, North Sydney do seem to be under threat, don't they? 
They do. I think, you know, the Teal candidates, whether it be um, Trevor and Trent, whether it be the seat of Benelong in Sydney, um, which is more sort of a three-way contest, or even in Victoria with Tim Wilson and Josh Frydenberg, I think it is quite interesting that um, the quote-unquote moderate Liberals are the ones being targeted. And, and look, I really do hope that a couple of the Teal candidates get across the line to shift Australia forward on things like climate and integrity. And what we have seen consistently across all of the Teal candidates is quite strong support for the LGBTI community. So we really do see that this is coming more and more of an issue. You know, Zali Stegall, Andrew Wilkie, MPs have been very supportive of LGBTI issues. Um, So I think we'll see more of that if a couple of Teals get up. How would you rate the Prime Minister's campaign? I mean, from a traditional point of view, it would seem terrible uh, that you've got the Teals running, who are basically disaffected Liberals. You've got all these divisions within the within the um, within the branch in New South Wales. Um, you know, we wouldn't front the National Press Club. Uh, he's he started the campaign by saying that you know you know him, like him, or love him, and then he's saying, "Well, I'm going to change because that wasn't working." I mean, it's been a bit of a disaster for him, hasn't it? Well, look, I think um, if you've got no convictions, then, uh, you know, there's no surprises in that nature. And, and one of the most interesting things I think a lot of Australians, even sort of more conservative voters, have realised is he really stands for absolutely nothing. Like, there's no conviction of views. There's flip-flopping for political expediency. You know, he's hyper sort of um, defensive, you know, the, the commentary around don't hold a hose, you know, really goes to the heart of who he is. Um, I think it's just really disappointing for Australia. And, and, you know, I do hope that whatever happens on Saturday, we'll have at least the aspirational leadership that shows that, you know, we're not slipping in relation to corruption and integrity, that we are finding our place in the Pacific and the world. And, you know, I think it's just really disappointing, but it really just shows that, you know, he he, he has really got no convictions other than keeping himself elected. Um, and I think that's just really disappointing Neil, is this election a referendum on Scott Morrison? Look, it's it's always an interesting one. Um, we're moving more and more into presidential-style elections in Australia, and this has been happening for a number of years now, and I don't actually think that's a good thing either for Australia or a democracy. And, and, and it has been flagged as a referendum on Scott Morrison, but this is the really interesting thing for sort of voters around Australia is, you know, you look at who is on the front bench of the alternative government, and we have people like Penny Wong, we have Tanya Plibersek. You know, these are people who are people of conviction, who I personally really like and respect and regard. Um, and you'd struggle to name some of the front bench on Scott Morrison's government. And I think those that you can name have been embroiled with all sorts of controversies. You know, Stuart Roberts and his internet charges. We've got Alan Tudge, who's the minister who's not a minister, but is still a minister. Like, we've got all of these quirks and 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 queries. And I think, you know, we shouldn't make it about one man or, or one woman in that regard, but have a look at the front bench behind these people and, and include that in your judgment and your vote on the weekend. Do you think that Anthony Albanese getting COVID was actually the great reset for his campaign that uh, it enabled him to show off his best asset, which appears to be his front bench, and that when he returned, that gave him some confidence to overcome those early uh, stumbles? While I wouldn't risk COVID on anyone, what it does show is that, you know, having a strong front bench and, and a number of really strong performers is really important. And, you know, Labor as a movement has never been about one person. It's always been a movement. And I think, you know, it really gave the opportunity for a lot of front benches to shine. And, and I hope that um, they'll become ministers come Sunday morning. 
has Anthony Albanese campaigned strongly enough? Uh, has he been able to overcome the, the barrage of bias from some elements of the media? Uh, what are your thoughts? I think it's an interesting one. He's definitely crisscrossed across a lot of the country and covered a lot of uh, a lot of space and and a lot of different electorates and and obviously um, made that presence known. But I think as the campaigns progress, we have seen more and more of his front bench. You know, I think he was in Adelaide today with Penny Wong and Don Farrell and and Peter Manarkas, who's the new Premier of South Australia. So no, I think. Um, I hope that he's campaigned hard enough. You know, like many people on the progressive side of politics, um, I have bigger aspirations around a number of issues, whether that be climate or LGBTI or Australia's place in the world. Um, but at least, you know, we're assured of, you know, a couple of very big, solid steps in the right direction, and hopefully that will start to reset the dynamic in Australia. I also think there's a number of really great people running across the Teal campaigns. You know, um, I grew up in Canberra and I'm really hopeful that David Pocock can be successful against the Liberal Party. I think, you know, he's someone who's been very strong on LGBTI issues and very passionate. And, you know, whether or not Anthony Albanese has been sort of the most active or the most effective campaigning-wise, he's definitely given it a good shot. And in that moments where you see his genuine character, he's been honest around things like, you know, a raise, a wage rise, for the lowest paid in Australia. And if we can get a couple of teals up along the way, I think we'll hopefully reset Australia into a country we can all be proud of again. It's interesting because, I mean, we talk about it being a presidential-style election, all the focus or most of the focus is on the major parties. But what about the political science of it all? It comes down to, you know, marginal seats, but also preferences and preferences in an age of, of the internet and very targeted advertisements from minor parties such as uh, the UAP. Uh, to what extent are you worried about preferences um, really determining this election? Look, I think every election for the last few years has actually come down to preferences. Um, you know, you conceptually have about a third of Australians who vote one way, a third who vote the other, and a third kind of who swing or are undecided or are preferencing in between. I think historically we've seen, you know, the votes of Pauline Hanson's One Nation and the United Australia Party um, predominantly drift to the conservative side of politics. Um, and so, you know, that's had a, a strong impact on on who forms government in, in previous years. And if you look back to 2019, it was preferences from the Palmer United Party, as it was then known, that actually meant that um, Labor missed out on a number of seats and, and could have potentially performed government preferences had gone differently. I think it's just really important for everyone to remember that that, that is our system. And, and, you know, I'm a great believer in the preferential system um, as opposed to the first-past-the-post system, as it means that we do get the most preferred candidate. But I think people have just got to be diligent with their preferences, both in the lower house and the upper house, to make sure, you know, they're voting for the right candidates. And, and particularly for all of the listeners today, be very very attentive in the Senate. There's lots of parties that sound like they're good parties, but when you peel back the details, they're actually very right-wing or very conservative parties. Um, so just make sure you definitely know who you're preferencing and voting for in the Senate, as there are a few curly ones, particularly uh, in, in the larger states like Victoria and New South Wales. But it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the primary vote of the two major parties is, you know, going down each election, it seems. Uh, and there's more, you know, minor parties running in the House of Reps. Uh, and there's some very, very well-targeted advertisements, especially in the latter stages of the campaign, on the internet. Uh, to what extent do you think that could mean that the polls are very wrong again? Look, I think there's, there's two points to that. I find it really interesting, you know, I use Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter and social media and stuff like that as well. Um, 
but it could be because my political politics is, is, you know, rather clear. But I've actually received very little online advertising. Now, I compare that to a number of my friends who are much more swing voters, and they've received insane amounts of very targeted political advertising. I think the interesting side of that is we've got to remember that, you know, I haven't checked the numbers today, but probably three or four million Australians have already voted. So, you know, they have been voting over the past couple of weeks. And so while the polls are tightening, the election result could actually already be metaphorically in the ballot or in the mail, uh, sorry, in the ballot box or in the mail already. You know, I think it's going to be really interesting with a lot of the, the hyper-targeting that's going on. And um, I, I just hope that everybody, you know, thinks that this will be Australia's leadership and Australia's position in the world for the next three years. And, you know, I, I want to be able to, to hold my head up again while travelling and know that we're a player and, and a respected citizen globally. And we definitely haven't been able to do that recently. Neil Farrow, thanks for your time. The Savo, always great to chat on 3CR. Always great to speak to you and I uh, hope you have a great weekend. You've got a democracy sausage sorted um, and look forward to touching base, hopefully with some good results uh, on Sunday. Good on you, Neil. Cheers. Have a great day. Neil Farrow there. You are and in your face on 3CR and here's Pink. Mr. President, come take a walk with me. Let's pretend we're just two people and you're not better than me. I'd like to ask you some questions if we can speak honestly. What do you feel when you see all the homeless on the street? Who do you pray for at night before you go to sleep? What do you feel when you look in the mirror? Are you proud? How do you sleep while the rest of us cry? President, were you a lonely boy? How can you say no child is left behind? We're not dumb and we're not blind. They're all sitting in your cells while you pay the road to hell. Take his own daughter's rights away And what kind of father might hate his own daughter if she were gay
Mr. President, you'd never take a walk with me. Pink there, dear Mr. President. You are an In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined on the line by Joe Ball, who's the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. Joe, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks, James. It's been a full-on six weeks for Switchboard and its clients during the election campaign. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's been a real time. Actually, um, for um, I'm actually coming today from the lands of the Larrakia people up in Darwin because I'm at the a National Transgender Health Conference, which is OzPath. It seems sort of fitting that in the last week of this election campaign, there'd be a national congregation of uh, trans health professionals because I think that it's exactly the time that we need to be coming together as trans people to sort of congregate and um, heal after the, after the election campaign we've had. Because, of course... This election campaign has been an outright attack on the trans community from beginning to end. It was like the first day of campaigning, Scott Morrison came out um, and then he, then there was the Ringa candidate um, attack after attack and then we had, people might remember, when Anthony Albanese was asked um, in a set-up press conference, he was asked, can, trans, can uh, men have babies? And he said no. And um, we just went backwards and forwards with, like, uh, Journalists after journalists after Australian article after the Australian article just popping up and um, trying to have hot takes and attacks on trans people. It's been absolutely relentless. What have people been saying up there in Darwin? It sounds quite a, a think tank of, of trans health professionals, activists, experts. Yeah, look, the conference opened this morning. So just for those who don't know, the National OzPath Conference, which I'm at, is a conference that is a bringing together of healthcare professionals. So it includes GPs, psychiatrists, psychologists, trans health workers, peer workers, and trans advocates and trans people. And we all come together every two years to have conversations about the needs of our community uh, and the challenges in front of us. And the, the conference opened with the president of OzPath just basically saying... What a terrible time it's been with the attacks specifically on transgender children, which there was really targeted attacks, and that the um, and and attacks on transgender women and transgender people generally. And the president said it's just been the worst that anyone has ever seen. And Ozpass has been around in one way or another uh, for about thirty years. So to make that comment, and then um, we had the historian Noah Reisman, who's, who was tracking the you know, the, the, the history of transgender health in this country, and he was saying it was absolutely unprecedented uh, the last two years, the attacks that have happened on our community. Five years generally, two years sort of specifically, but these last four to five weeks in this election campaign have just been just relentless. Just the sheer media coverage around a community that makes up about 2% of the population. For that to be so central in an election campaign where there's been COVID, climate change, um, uh, cost of living, that they would even sort of just debate these issues. It just shows just how much they want to distract and defer through um, having a go at trans people. I mean, it's been quite unprecedented. I don't think there's ever been an election campaign anywhere in the world where trans people have been targeted like this, you know, not even in 2020 in the US with Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just obviously uh, Scott Morrison and people talk about him as being a a marketing genius, um, you know, he has seen 
that there is currency in and a role to play in having a scapegoat in this campaign, to have a distraction and a scapegoat, and he has just lent into it. And I think we have to see the attacks as being orchestrated so centrally from his office. Um, and I think that is something that is very concerning that the leader of our country, the Prime Minister, would choose to do such a thing um, really speaks like deeply to the character of that man. What's your response to the Prime Minister saying, saying, oh, look, if you re-elect me, I'll change, but then not walking back his commitments about the religious discrimination bill, you know, upping the ante on that, and then, you know, saying he's going to be less of a bulldozer and then knocking into the kid in Tasmania. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of, what do you make of it all? What do you make of those, of those promises about, about his character? Well, I think, I think it's very unclear what he's going to change in regards to. Like, he hasn't really told us how he's going to change, but I think that he's told us that he's not going to change about LGBTIQA plus issues. In fact, the only change he's given us about LGBTIQA plus issues is if he is re-elected, he'll reintroduce the Religious Discrimination Bill and, and he'll change it so that there's no exemptions for um, gay and trans kids' protections in schools. So if there's going to be any change from him about our community, it's going to be a change for the worse if we go on his own record, his own statement about himself. So I think the idea of him changing is, um, you know, it's not a change we can wish for. And I also just think, um, yeah, like I, I, I think that we can only judge at the polls um, people on record. And I must admit, I've had um, the opportunity to meet with a range of different political parties and I have actually asked to meet with members of the Liberal Party and they haven't wanted to meet with me. Um, but I have spoken to a number of Labor candidates like Josh Burns um, and Jed and uh, Stephen... Um, Stephen... I've just forgotten his name. But um, I've met a number of ALP candidates and what I have gotten from the ALP candidates is a recommitment to further LGBTIQI rights, a recommitment to uh, tackle suicide prevention in our country. So I sort of feel like there is a choice this election, um, quite clearly, and I think most listeners would feel that choice for sure. So no Liberal MPs during the campaign have even reached out to Switchboard privately and offered their support? Oh, absolutely not. And we are really open. I mean, we are an organisation that's 31 years old this year. We have worked under successive governments. We've worked under all political parties. You know, we've worked under Liberal. We've worked under Labor. Um, you know, we've been funded from federal Liberal governments in the past. We've been funded under Tony Abbott through our Q Life program. You know, we have, you know, we, we work to the government, you know, we... You know, we work to the government of the day in the sense that we talk to all, all parties, we talk to all sides, and we always will because our community issues are, you know, they're not determined every four years. They are forever, and we need to have those conversations with whoever will have it. So I've been really open. I've reached out to Tim Wilson on a number of occasions to speak to him, um, and he hasn't been interested. And, you know, I've reached out to the candidate um, in the seat of the Victorian Pride Centre and I'm always open to having discussions. Um, I mean, I've reached out to Scott Morrison directly. I mean, if anyone follows my Twitter account, they might know that I actually shared a hotel with Scott Morrison this Monday. Um, and so I actually did a reach out to him to actually meet with me for five minutes, which would have been the first time and only time we believe that he's ever met with a transgender person. And I gave him that opportunity at the 11th hour of the campaign. 
um, for five minutes um, in the hotel lobby, and uh, he was not interested in that either. Incredible. He was in the same building as, mm, a, right. as an advocate for LGBTIQA plus mental health, uh, and he still wouldn't talk to you, even though, you know, presumably he's got something to, to, to crow about with their policy announcement to invest in queer mental health. Um, he, still, he still couldn't, you know, be gracious enough to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of that work that happened around the queer mental health, we have to welcome any kind of investment in our community. But I think also we need to acknowledge the paucity of that investment. Um, There was a small amount of money for suicide prevention. But like I'm on the record and I've said to you personally, James, is that I think that at least 15% of suicide prevention money should be going to our community because of the sheer high rates of suicide in our community. And it was just a trickle, a little token amount of money that's been given to to um, our peak services, um, LGBTI Health Australia and the FAO. It really doesn't... It will not make any significant change for the urgency of preventing suicide. And, you know, I'll be looking to whatever government forms after Saturday to actually further that issue and say... Come on, if you want to work for suicide prevention, you've got to make a far bigger national investment across the issue. So, I mean, you've got to welcome funding, but you've also got to be critical when it's, when it's just so low um, and, of, you know, so, so late as well. It's interesting. They've kind of undercut the um, the benefits from their announcement in some ways by undermining our community so much that it means that you know more energy and resources has to go into LGBTIQA plus mental health, and it kind of diminishes their their value for money, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't have any situation where you are. I mean, like I think some of the policies, you know, like one of some of the policies they've had, like the Religious Discrimination Bill, which would see that actually people in our community would be prevented from accessing, you know, could be prevented from accessing like things like family violence services and mental health services and, and, and other general welfare services because of the exemptions that could come into play with religious discrimination. And I, and I think, you know, if, that's, if we're going to be prevented from accessing services that are life-saving... Um, you can't say that that's going to be a policy. That, you know, you can't offset that with a couple of hundred thousand dollars here and there. So I think that, you know, we need to see... What my biggest passion is, we need to see in this country that LGBTIQA plus issues become bipartisan, that we don't see it as a political football that can be thrown around. Um, and actually, the, the, both parties need to come together and say, actually, these. let's look at the evidence that we see from the national surveys we have um, let's listen to the lived experience of people in the LGBTI community that are facing poor mental health and, and, and live with thoughts of suicide. Let's hear from them and let's work together as a government to actually tackle these issues and work with the sector, um, like community-controlled organisations across this country. And I think that's what I want to see is, is it has to become bipartisan. LGBTIQ seniors have been pretty much invisible in this campaign from a policy commitment point of view. Uh, what can you tell us about that? What's your response? Yeah, look, I think that um, look, we always talk about this, and I love this about you, James, that you want to talk about this issue because this is an issue that it's very hard to get people to care about. Uh, to care about seniors in general is very difficult, and I think when I... One of the things I think has been so disappointing is the Royal Commission into Aged Care. For starters, there's been this, you know, the federal government has not made enough commitment to that, the findings in the Royal Commission at all, and to monetarising the findings in the Royal Commission. 
But in the Royal Commission itself, there just isn't enough outcomes for LGBTIQA plus people. They actually even struggled at times to name us. They kind of named us as like a priority group within a small section. So they sort of feel like they can address our issues, our, our older people issues in like kind of the mainstream way. But that's not based on evidence. Uh, evidence is that, you know, LGBTIQA plus people are under-accessing aged care and under-accessing under services like home care. So we actually need additional services to get our community um, into those sort of those, um, those ageing services and to sort of turn around the tide where, you know, LGBTIQA plus people too often say statements like, you know, I'd rather die than go into aged care. Like, we need to change aged care for everyone in this country. That's what COVID showed, put a spotlight on. But we also need to change it for LGBTIQA plus people. And if you call us a priority population in the Royal Commission, then you've got to actually fund it like it's a priority population. So, again... This is a conversation I'd want to take up after the election with whoever is the aged care, you know, um, minister and try and get, you know, representatives into the national advisory groups, LGBTI seniors representatives at those roundtables and to be speaking to government about issues in our community. I'm glad you mentioned COVID, uh, especially in relation to our seniors, because, of course, COVID's hardly got a mention during the campaign. And for older people, the pandemic is still very much raging. And in fact, case numbers have been steadily increasing. Uh, and just that isolation must be very much still in play for them. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, I'm like proud to say that at Switchboard, we, we support 90 today, we support 95 older people that live in aged care or in their own home, um, and we support them by through the release of social isolation through a community visitor program. And, um, yeah, we support people to go and visit and have that and sometimes take people on, out to events like midsummer, to the movies, to cafes. But, of course, that's been very difficult during COVID, and, and, we've, and I think that we need a reinvestment at the national and state level in LGBTIQA plus seniors and the social supports for seniors that recognises the challenges of COVID. Um, And I think that, you know, recently at Switchboard, we ran a a few events um, for older transgender people in our community, and that was an absolute treat, actually. It was one of the first times that I'd seen a trans man as a transgender man myself, I got to see a trans man that was in his 70s. And I must say that, you know, like there's such a joy um, to be able to support older people in our communities and to see ourselves as ageing through supporting our elders. And I feel really proud that we do that work at Switchboard. And I think that, you know, it would be great to see, you know, we run that program on the smell of an oily rag. Um, and I think it's very hard to get sort of state and national governments really interested in LGBTI seniors. And of course, when we're thinking about uh, celebrating, you know, the end of decriminalisation um, in the, you know, in this year, it would be great to sort of think about those who lived through decriminalisation. Absolutely. We stand on the shoulders of giants and it needs to be more than just a cliche. It needs to be put into practice and, you know, have our, have our seniors, you know, validated in real and meaningful ways and supported. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think it's an interesting time um, 
you know, thinking of, I'm trying to think about like what's going to happen after Saturday. And I think there's a lot of issues in our community that we've got to take up after Saturday. I mean, my top priority is we've got to do something about suicide prevention. We've got to be in the national plan for suicide prevention. We've got to do something about mental health. We've got to be in the family violence national plan, the women's safety summit, you know, that came a national plan out of that. We need to be in that. We need to see the census change for 2024. We need to ask questions about gender, sex and sexuality in the census. And being at this conference this week, this week, we need to have trans surgeries, uh, trans-affirming care, including hormones and all the hormone treatments to be on the um, PBS for Medicare. That's my election wish list or post-election wish list. Joe, how has the campaign actually impacted on, on Switchboard's telephone services? Have you seen an increase in calls and people accessing you online? One of the things we have seen is an increase in the distress since the beginning of this year with the religious discrimination bill. Actually, we've seen like numbers really went up during the religious discrimination bill and they stayed up. So normally what we'd see is they'd go up in a spike and after an event, you might see a, a gradual trickling down. But what we actually saw is the numbers go up and stay up, which showed that how people were experiencing it was attack after attack after attack. Because if people think back, yes, it's been, you know, an ele- yes, it's been this month of the electioneering, but just before that, we were seeing lots of comments about transgender people, and before that, we had the religious discrimination bill. So I think for most of this year, we've actually seen huge distress across our community, and that's really saying something because, of course, COVID was distressing. So to see another spike Um, because of the religious discrimination bill that stayed up because of the trans attacks. You know, it's really been very alarming. And I think that nobody needed this. That's what we hear from people on the phone is we already, as a community, were dealing with enough because of um, COVID, because of the pressures in our own life, because of stigma and discrimination that already exist in our communities. And these attacks this year have just added that extra layer. And for some people, that's been an extra layer that's been far too much. Um, it's been too much to bear. And that's what we've, the conversations we've been having. I mean, hearing all of that, it sounds like we really need a national apology from Australia's parliament to our community for the distress that it has caused and the damage it has done. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, look, there's there's a number of apologies that could definitely take place. I mean, I think one of the things I just want to see is a commitment that we don't do this again in four years' time. That's, you know, I want to see both sides of parliament. I think we have to say that we want to see both major political parties coming to a consensus that we won't do this next time. And... um, Yeah, and that these things are not in the electoral cycle. And I think that we've already seen those. I mean, the people that I've spoken to in Labor, I think there's a lot of goodwill to not have these attacks. I think there's a lot of um, people don't want, you know, Labor, I don't think Labor didn't set the terrain. You have to say that. They didn't set the terrain. The terrain was very much set um, from Scott Morrison's um, office with the Warringah candidate and his constant engagement with the issue uh, so I think we've already got one side that's willing to, I, I believe, to make that commitment, and I just think we need to see it from the Liberals as well. And I think there is people in the Liberals like Trent Zimmerman, Andrew Bragg, but, um, Bridget Archer, those people who cross the floor, they equally want to see 
this issue be bipartisan because they, you know, anyone who puts on a human lens on this issue realises that this is real people who are being scapegoated and it just has to stop. In 2022, it has to stop. Joe, if people need support, where can they go? They can absolutely go to Switchboard. Um, you can find out the, the Rainbow Door service, you can, which is, I suggest people go to our website and see the full list of our services, including our older people's program at www.switchboard.org.au. And to everybody, um, you are not alone. We want you to call if you're struggling um, and, and we need to get through this together as a community. Joe Ball, always great to chat on 3CR. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, James. Joe Ball there, CEO of Switchboard Victoria. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Here's Suzanne Vega. Dan Vega there with me. You are an In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Anna Brown is the CEO of Equality Australia and we chatted earlier this afternoon about the election. What's your observation been of the campaign? What are the words that jump out to you? I think it's been appalling, actually. The, um, the amount of uh, 
you know, really ill-informed and hateful um, discussion of uh, issues impacting on transgender people has just been so incredibly, um, you know, I think quite shocking in a way. I just couldn't, you know, a few weeks ago, I just couldn't have imagined um, the federal election campaign playing out in the way that it has. And for Catherine Deves and her um, historic and what seems to be current views on transgender people, um, really horrific views being ventilated in the way that they have and it just has kept going and going and going. So it, it rather than talking about the sort of very real and pressing issues facing LGBTI people from a you know, mental health or um, other social policy perspective or law reform, instead, um, you know, we've seen what is a horrible debate which has actually contributed to really poor mental health in our communities. I know from speaking to support services that calls for counselling and support are through the roof, speaking to parents whose trans kids feel like they can't play sport with their friends who are withdrawing from their sporting uh, sporting groups that they're a part of. It's just been really, really awful. How culpable is the Prime Minister for this debate? I think the, the you know, that the Prime Minister has, has um, stood next to um, MPs and um, raised, you know, seemingly supported, stood by Catherine Deeves. So um, that that is that's been really unfortunate, and um, it's played a part in this in the media continuing to um, raise these issues with him because um, and and it's just you know continued to spiral. But there has been um, we we at least managed to have a federal election forum last. Um, Gosh, I think it was only last week, but (laughs) time's been moving very quickly. And we did have Senator Andrew Bragg, uh, Senator Penny Wong and Senator Janet Rice from the three major parties um, talking about, uh, refreshingly, talking about um, some of the policy issues that we'd like um, our political parties to be focusing on when it comes to how to best meet the needs of our community. So we did have a, a constructive discussion uh, where Senator Andrew Bragg did actually call out some of the nastiness of the past few weeks as well, which was welcome. But he's in the minority, isn't it? Isn't he? I know he was saying that you know these are his personal views, but he's in a party full of conservatives that has very right-wing views when it comes to our community. And you must be very worried about the potential for the religious discrimination bill to come back uh, and its detriments to our community. Yeah, I think um, no matter who forms government um, will be obviously holding the line and, and working to make sure that no laws take us backwards. Certainly the Morrison government has made a commitment to reintroduce the religious discri- discrimination bill in its current form um, and, and that bill, I mean people I'm sure know this already, but that bill actually would have overridden existing discrimination protections, not just for our communities, but for women, people with disability, and ironically people of faith. So we, we don't want to see that bill come back um, and we'll be advocating, um, you know, whether if it's the Morrison government that wins tomorrow, we'll be advocating really, really hard for um, the parliament to not support the bill in its current form. And indeed, um, what we do need to do is amend the Sex Discrimination Act, which currently protects LGBTI people and women um, from discrimination. But there's big... Um, gaps in protection when it comes to religious organisations. So what we'd like to see is 
I'm sure plenty of people out there would like to see is some of these really gaping holes that means that fields and, and that means protecting students at religious schools, it means protecting teachers at religious schools and in fact people accessing services from religious organisations. We know that many of these organisations are you know, very inclusive and welcoming of our communities but these laws <clears throat> um, don't don't set the right standard. We need to make sure that um, whenever you walk into a, particularly when you think about the government funding that goes into some of these services, that people can walk through the door and know they're going to be um, treated with dignity and respect. Equality Australia has surveyed the parties. You've got the responses back. What did the political parties tell us about their policies? Uh, well, they're a bit late this time, so we're actually just about to release the responses this afternoon. We did have... Um, uh, we had the all, all the parties um, respond, but not on every issue. The Greens' response was obviously... Well, as you would expect, I think the Greens' response was the most comprehensive. They have a, a... And you might have covered it in the program already, a really substantial policy offering um, across a range of different areas um, and really substantial funding commitments um, to meet the needs of our communities. But then we have Labor with a very quite narrow policy offering, particularly compared to what they um, were committing to last federal election, which you might remember included everything from a ban on conversion therapy, so-called therapy, to um, having an LGBTI minister and commissioner um, and also uh, community funding for community organisations. Now, none of that's on the table this time round. What we're seeing is Labor committing, um, has a position on removing the religious exemptions in the Sex Discrimination Act to protect uh, students and teachers from discrimination, although what we'd like to see is some more clarity about uh, whether they'll allow... Um, discrimination on religious grounds, which sometimes could be a way of... which could sometimes be used as a rational way of discriminating against um, our communities. Uh, and then we... Uh, we they've boosted funding for Tula and also committed to um, specialised uh, family violence workers being run out of LGBTI community-controlled organisations. So there's there's some funding commitments there. There's also a commitment to a national uh, LGBTI health consultation and they'll fund um, our national health peak bodies for our communities to, to run that consultation. So that that is promising and it should lead to issues like access to gender-affirming care for trans people getting some much-needed attention and, and also the disparities um, that our communities face in mental health and um, other health issues and access to those services as well. I can get to the coalition but it's quite a short it's quite a short summary. The coalition actually made a huge mental health and suicide prevention announcement and have made a commitment to um, uh, some LGBTI specific initiatives within that, um, including a boost to um, funding for QLife as well. So that was a positive. And then uh, the coalition also um, has a huge announcement around um, women's safety and, and included in that is a lot of funding for prevention and funding for LGBTI-specific initiatives. Do you feel like the coalition's mental health funding is kind of 
inadequate because of all the mental health damage they've actually caused the community. It's a bit of a drop in the bucket. And perhaps if they were less uh, homophobic in many of their policies and transphobic, that, you know, they wouldn't need to actually um, fund us to the same extent. Oh, yeah. I mean, we need both. We need a government that actually leads and represents all Australians and lifts up all Australians, including some of the most vulnerable people of suicide in this country, young trans people. That's certainly not happening at the moment. And we we absolutely need that um, programmatic and funding support for initiatives that support suicide prevention in our communities and ideally funding for community-controlled organisations as well as generalist organisations. But um, certainly the... Yeah, that, uh, we, we all know that through the social determinants of health that um, discriminatory laws contribute to those mental health outcomes. So... We really need to tackle them and the horrible debate. Anna Brown, thank you so much for your time, the Savo. Much appreciated. And that was Anna Brown, the CEO of Equality Australia. And yep, you're on In Your Face on 3CR.
died pretty there. Laughing boy, I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave, but taking us out is Vicky Sue Robinson. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. 
To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.